So, Jay, when S.H.I.E.L.D. was after Sunspot, was that because of that whole Rainfire thing? S.H.I.E.L.D.? No, Miles, that was because Sunspot bought AIM. AIM the supervillain organization. The super science organization. They're not so much evil as aggressively amoral. Villainy is just the most expedient way past review boards. Well, that makes sense, but why did Bobby go supervillain then? He didn't. He started a chapter of the Avengers. He rescued the president from the Maker. What did Forge have against the president? I mean, I guess it depends on which president. It would, yeah, but no, not not that Maker. Uh, This wasn't Forge, it was Reed Richards. Isn't Reed Richards Mr. Fantastic? I mean, we just talked to Chip about this. Well, to a point, but the Reed Richards from Earth-1610, who was very morally flexible even by Reed Richards' generous standards... That's saying something. Right? Anyway, Reed-1610 started going by the name Maker around the time he went full supervillain. Later, he founded a group of super scientists using the ones who'd left AIM when Sunspot took over. By then, he'd moved over to the 616, and as part of that group's agenda, he kidnapped the president, or at least thought he had. What did he actually do? Well, see, Bobby tricked the Maker into teleporting onto the wrong Air Force One. There's more than one? I mean, it's right there in the name. Well, there's more than one when one of them's a warlock. Huh. Okay, but what about the president? Oh, the president just turned out to be Bobby in disguise. Neat trick. Some kind of aim super tech, I assume? On Bobby da Costa? I don't think so, man. He's old school. Okay, so an image inducer. Older. Think traditional. Telepathic suggestion? Rubber mask. What?! Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 286 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome to our actually final episode before Age of Apocalypse. For real, we promise. I don't think we should promise. I think I think we can we can guarantee within a reasonable margin. That's reasonable, I suppose. I mean, who knows? Maybe our entire reality could end and be rewritten before we have a chance to get to Age of Apocalypse. Speaking of our reality, as compared to the ones in the comics, and some things that are going to be happening in it, we are coming up rapidly on Emerald City Comic Con, where, as usual, you will be able to find us in Artist's Alley. We are going to be at table MM5, think Mutant Menace and Original 5 X-Men, and we're going to be doing a live show on Saturday evening, followed immediately by our annual birthday party at Phoenix Comics. I'm really excited. Emerald City is always a highlight of the year. But what's also become a highlight of the year is the other convention we just got confirmed for. That's right. We are not doing a lot of shows this year, but we're doing two pretty amazing ones. The second isn't for a very long time. That is going to be FlameCon, where we will be tabling and again, hopefully doing a live show. That's not till the end of summer. So for now, I guess uh, we can focus on Emerald City and scrambling to make a whole lot of buttons in a fairly short period of time. Mm Mm-hmm. Other cool things in reality? Jay, you've been making some stuff... Oh yeah, that is true. So, um, Thor Metal Gods, which is the serialized audio novel I co-wrote, continues to be going up a bit at a time at SerialBox.com. And while it won't be out for a couple months yet, in fact, specifically is coming out the very end of April, um, 
I also wrote X-Men Snapshots Cyclops, which is a one-shot. It's part of the Marvel Snapshots line. Um, it's drawn by Tom Riley. I am incredibly, incredibly excited about it. It is my my first official, I think, foray into into 616 continuity. Um, it's been a lot of fun. Hopefully you will also like it. I am so freaking excited. If anybody in the world is qualified to write Cyclops, I'm pretty sure it's you at this point, Jay. So the funny part is that it's set it's set back at the orphanage, and Kurt Busiek, who's who's curating the line and, and basically editing it, and I went through a lot of the continuity and history, um, and we're like, no, no, we have to keep this consistent, we have to keep this consistent. And I was pretty sure going in, but especially when I double-checked everything, there is actually no way to do that era consistently with everything. I believe that. I mean, you combine the bit we get in the Silver Age backup stories with what Claremont started to put forth with all of the sinister nonsense that was just layered on over and over and over. Well, and all of the zillion different like one shot retellings that there have been over the years. And a lot of them, a lot of them overlap, but have, you know, slightly different details. You can no prize it away pretty effectively. That's what we ended up doing. So this is, this is something that like, I think a lot of those other histories draws from the bits that work for the story. Awesome. Well, I'm really, really excited. It is just so badass to see actual continuity. Like you get to have a hand in it. Oh God, Tom's art is so good too. Like I, I keep on seeing it and just being like, and I can't post it because it's a secret, but it's so good. It's so good. Well, 2020 isn't what we're mostly going to be talking about today because we are smack in the middle of 1995. And in 1995, the world was ending a lot. Of course, with our last continuity episode, we talked about why. We talked about Legion Quest, about Legion going back in time to assassinate Magneto and accidentally killing Xavier and that breaking reality. But we do have a little more to talk about. We specifically have what Excalibur and X-Force were up to as reality was about to break, and also a really weird cable issue. It's technically part of Legion Quest, but it takes place simultaneously to the last chapter while also kind of being an epilogue, so we just figured we would cover it here. Yeah, I think it's a bit of a coda, and we could have either pulled it in and, and covered it with the last batch of books or gone let it let it spill over to this one and given it a little more space, and we decided to do the latter just because it's an issue that, that really needs some breathing room. But first, two complete non-sequiturs. So we have Excalibur, we have X-Force. Where should we start, Jay? Let's go in alphabetical order. All right. And since Excalibur is the only X-Book to actually start with an E, let's start with that first. All right. So it's been a while since we talked about Excalibur. What's been up there? Well, after being passed around between writers, like my copy of Saga Volume 1 is passed around between my friends, Excalibur is now being written by Warren Ellis. But their status quo is pretty much the same as it was before he showed up. That is to say, they are a team of mostly mutants based out of Muir Isle, Dr. Amara McTaggart's Scottish research facility. Their membership includes Nightcrawler, Shadowcat, Britannic, used to be Captain Britain, Megan, Duglock, and the currently absent, sometimes Y of the team, Daytripper. She's Nightcrawler's girlfriend and sister. Comics. There's also Rory Campbell, a researcher who recently learned he's maybe destined to become the genocidal anti-mutant cyborg Ahab from the Days of Future past timeline. He's there too, mostly brooding. Back in the day, Excalibur spent a lot of time dealing with Britain's weird happenings 
organization who, because of the team's frequent proximity to and precipitation of said weird happenings. And both before and after the Weird Happenings organization, the resource control executive was a thorn in their side slash set of allies. They were sort of a more sinister version of who. They were a lot of fun. However, both organizations have since shut down. But what has risen to fill their places? We'll find out in Excalibur number 86, Back to Life. Written by Warren Ellis, penciled by Ken Lashley, inked by Tom Weggerson, whose last name I am certainly mispronouncing, and colored by Joe Rosas. The combination of, of Lashley and Weggerson, at points, not consistently, but occasionally goes intensely Alan Davis. Have you noticed that? It does, yeah. I mean, there's still Lashley's kind of drawn-out faces and anatomy, like everybody looks like they're a little dehydrated, but still there's a bit of that Davis to it, I agree. That's especially there, I think, in Nightcrawler's face. Yeah, if only he were wearing a turtleneck. But honestly, he should always wear a turtleneck. Or just nothing. Either way, really. Follow your heart, Nightcrawler. Mm-hmm. So, in this issue, we get to know, as we alluded to a few moments ago, the new British intelligence organization, Black Air. They're kind of like an even more sinister version of the RCX or of WHO. Like, if WHO was more of a military organization, this is more of a black ops unit, as you might take from their name. They're specifically the CIA, but sneakier and with more magic. And they also have some great names. The three we meet when their plane lands on Muriel to talk to Excalibur are Michelle Skikluna, Threadgold, and a name you may be familiar with if you've been following X-Men throughout this era, Pete Wisdom. These guys are much colder and much scarier than who, and I think even more than the RCX, because the RCX was weird, but they were still like, they were they were uncanny, but they were still a little goofy. Yeah, there's really nothing goofy at all about Black Air, which might be unfortunate, I don't know. And there's nothing goofy at all either about Pete Wisdom. So... We actually saw early in the issue Britannic, who, remember, got stuck in the time stream for a long time, having a future vision of Wisdom getting shot to death. And in that vision, we saw Wisdom as a stubbly guy with hair in his eyes, a perpetual cigarette, and a tattered black trench coat. If you need to visualize him right now, Pete Wisdom is John Constantine who got held upside down and dunked briefly in an ink pot. Yep, and personality-wise, he's... I mean, let's be real. He's basically Warren Ellis's self-insertion character. Like, Warren Ellis always has a super snarky asshole protagonist in his comics, and this is that one. Right, he's John Constantine who got held upside down and dipped briefly in an ink pot. Well, there you go. We see an early example of this as Moira McTaggart tells Pete Wisdom, hey, you're in a scientific lab, there's no smoking, and he just straight up tells her to sod off. Yeah, I, I, I don't know how we're going to do Pete Wisdom lines, because I feel like you need the grumbly extreme Britishness. I, I'm i not even going to attempt a British accent. I'm terrible at accents in general, and I suspect I'm extra terrible at that one. We might have to call in reinforcements for these. We, we do know some British people, it's true. So, the reason Black Air and our snarky jerk Pete Wisdom are here is that Genosha, you know, the mutant metaphor for an apartheid state— After the mutates were free, after they stopped being the enslaved underclass, apparently the economy of Genosha blew up, there's been tons of infighting, everybody's starving, it's all terrible. And some of the Genosians called British intelligence for help. Now, British intelligence 
cannot actually help because they don't have evidence of the thing that they want Excalibur to investigate, which is that the humans have developed a type of special ordinance that can kill mutants more easily than normal bullets, which can also kill mutants. But they're like extra dangerous bullets. They're like bullets that shoot extra bullets out of the guns that the bullets themselves are holding in their cartoon arms because they're like bullet bills, I assume. Wouldn't those be extra dangerous to humans as well? I mean, yeah, but it's mutants they're shooting them at. So there you go. Now, speaking of Britannic having future visions, he had a future vision about this, too. He saw all the horrible stuff going on in Genosha. And I gotta say, well, a couple things. Well, a lot of things, because I'm a podcaster. But two of the things I have to say are as follows. Number one, in Britannic's vision, the mutates looked like they've been starving for months, if not even longer. Like, they are seriously, seriously emaciated. I know Genosha didn't have a lot of its own uh, crops and stuff. That's why they use mutates for for labor and their powers to help with agriculture. But goddamn. And secondly, wait a minute. Blood ties. Blood ties told us all about what was up in Genosha, and it wasn't really this because, that's right, it's another episode of Uncle Warren's Continuity Corner. Which is to say, it's Warren Ellis, and he doesn't really care about continuity, he just wants to tell good stories, which I have mixed feelings about. So before we go forward, I want to go back a little bit to the opening, because you mentioned Captain Britain's vision, but what you didn't mention is that that comes itself on the heels of a flashback to one of Pete Wisdom's last missions with Black Air, and specifically the mission that led him to decide he was going to leave the organization. He doesn't say that here on the page, but he does mention to one of his colleagues before he leaves off with that caliber that the deal is he goes along on this one mission as a non-combatant, and then they have to follow through with what they've talked about, which is going to be letting him go. Is that why the world ended? Not because of the Emkron Crystal or Legion Quest, but because a law enforcement official dared to say he was just going to do one last job before retirement? So, I'm really hoping that I just don't remember this because I hadn't seen The Prisoner the first time that I read Excalibur. But if there is not a why did you res- an extended why did you resign Pete Wisdom Black Arif, I am going to be so angry. That's legit, yeah. I feel like Warren Ellis would probably love The Prisoner. Or hate it because he hates a lot of things. One of the two. But it's the kind of thing that 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 is so eminently and fundamentally British weird that it would get referenced in Excalibur. Totally would. Agreed. Well, before the mission actually starts, because Excalibur does agree to go along on the mission because they're mostly very nice people, Douglock goes to check in with Rory Campbell to see if Rory's going to be coming along. And Rory is terrified to do so because he realizes if he's going to become Ahab, he knows he's going to have to start hating mutants for a reason. And so he doesn't want to put himself into any situations where mutants might hurt him or otherwise screw up his life. Otherwise, he sees the angry pirate captain with all of the murder hands in the mirror. That's a really long leap. I know, especially because we as readers know that Ahab lost his limbs due to Rachel Summers long after he became a genocidal maniac. Well, that, and he seems like he's setting himself up to resent mutants if he's significantly curtailing his life based on them. Yeah, it's a problem, and it's going to become more of a problem to an almost comical degree, to be honest. Like, the bad shit that dude goes through is just so over the top. It definitely gets into some Murphy's Laws territory. 
And that song your cousin wrote when he was like four or five years old. Oh, yeah, about the person whose limbs all kept kept breaking off. Shout out to Will. It was a really sad song. I feel so bad. He's in his early 20s now, and we're never, ever, ever going to let him live that down because it was so delightful. Time makes adorable stories of us all. Also before the mission, Nightcrawler goes to check in with Moira because Kurt's a smart dude, and he's figured out that she must have the legacy virus. He knows that some human has, has got it, and the only other human on the island is Rory, who hasn't been around any infected patients. But wait a minute, no! Britannic is a human. Captain Britain is very specifically not a mutant. That's a whole plot point. And Day Tripper, wherever the hell she is, she's a human too. Mm, yes and no. Whether and to what extent Day Tripper is, is formally human is questionable for entirely other reasons. But Britannic, we know, isn't fully human. He's 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 half he's half from Elseworlds. Like his his dad was from Elseworlds. He's his dad was not human, and whatever Brian is, it's something else. Ah, but he is not a mutant. That's actually a plot point right now in Excalibur. Well, right, he's not a mutant, but he's also not a Homo sapien. I suppose that's true. He's an otherworld sapien on his dad's side. Anyway, I think it's just another fun example of Uncle Warren's continuity corner. Don't you mean lack of continuity corner? Yeah, but there's less alliteration there. They head off to the Midnight Runner. What is the Midnight Runner, you may ask? The Midnight Runner is Mara's cute little hovercraft. Or at least it was. Oh man, there's this great scene in the issue where Britannic, he's just dressed like a dude. His mullet's back in a ponytail. He's distracted by future visions, but he's just happy to be an engineer again, to be using his education instead of just punching people and getting punched. Like, Warren Ellis is doing such a good job at rehabilitating Brian after all the bullshit he's been through, especially during the Britannic era. He really is. But Ellis's dialogue here is just a joy as a horrified Moira sees Captain Britain fucking up her hovercraft. It's my own fault. I let an Englishman on my island. Me. I just thought we could use a faster transport, so I adapted some Shi'ar tech. Hank had some stuff flown in from Westchester. And it was good therapy going back to physics, engineering. That was my specialty, you know. I want some therapy with your head in my boot. I loved my wee hovercraft. It was cute. Not some big thrusting macho speed thing. And once it's had a proving flight, I can start work on the medical version. A hypersonic medical installation, Mara, reaching any situation in the world in hours. Medical. You know, you're a very handsome young man. A veritable genius, too. I've always admired the English. Lying. I... I really like Ellis's writing. Like, dude doesn't give a shit about continuity. He may be a little confused about how old Kitty Pride is, but his books are just fun to read. Yeah, yeah, no, and this is, this is, there's a spark in Excalibur that hasn't been there really since Davis left, I think, that's, that's finally starting to come back. I completely agree, yeah. And speaking of fun dynamics, Kitty Pride and Pete Wisdom are getting to know each other on the flight as Kitty pulls Pete's cigarette out of his mouth. You know, I'm getting real good at stubbing cigarettes out on people. Want me to practice some more? Give me back my cigarette, you body fascist, or I'll rip off your head and spit down your neck. Well, that's real witty. You think that up all by yourself? 
And this is the beginning of a flirtation that will lead into a pretty long-term relationship. So we've talked about this before. Pete Wisdom is very much an adult. I think he's supposed to be, I don't know, let's say mid to late 20s, something along those lines, maybe early 30s. Kitty, well, her age is really ambiguous in this era. Especially as compared to Jubilee, she's clearly been aged up significantly, but she aged so slowly when she first got on the scene that that feels weird. This is one of those places where I think it is worth looking at authorial intent, which gives us something in retrospect as we go back and read this that we wouldn't have necessarily had at the time that makes it much more okay as a series, Um, which is that Ellis thought that Kitty was much older than she allegedly is in the comics, or at least is counting back to her last birthday, I think, which I think would put her at 15 or 16 at this point. So yeah, just look at this being Kitty having taken an age jump that Marvel time doesn't quite account for. Yeah, and while Claremont may walk back her age later, he then walks it forward again. I mean, Chris Claremont has many things, but consistent perhaps is not one of them. So I agree. I think I'm pretty much cool with this. I'm cool with it with that context. Without it, I think it's a massive problem, and I think it's a little bit fucked up that no one caught it at the time. But again, this is one of those places where going back from the present to read that stuff gives us a significant textual advantage. Agreed. Well, the poor wee hovercraft does get to Genosha, and it is fucked down there. There are guns, there are rockets, there are people starving, and one of those rockets hits the Midnight Runner. And there's a big explosion, and it starts to crash. And then reality crystallizes, and the world ends. And that's where we leave Excalibur as Age of Apocalypse begins, in the middle of, I mean, not so much a cliffhanger as a plane crasher. Less of a ring to that. It's definitely the most abrupt of the pre-Age of Apocalypse endings. Let's talk about X-Force. What's X-Force been up to? Oh, X-Force has been up to all sorts of things. X-Force, the most extreme teens of all, have established a new status quo. They are living under New York City and Arcade's old secret base, Murder World. Their membership has been the same for a while. Mostly, but not entirely, former New Mutants. There's Cannonball, Boom Boom, Richter, Shatterstar, Siren, and Warpath. I believe uh, Boom Boom is going by Boomer these days. You can take me calling her Boom Boom out of my cold, dead, exploded hands. That makes no sense. But, um, neglects. Also, the most extreme teens of all, so extreme that they're not even teens, Cable and Domino. Cable's a teen these days. That's a different Cable. Sort of. X-Force used to have Sunspot on their team, too, but then X-Force got into yet another fight with the Mutant Liberation Front, their terrorist arch-enemies. Real quick, what's the deal with the MLF? The MLF is a group that was started by Strife. That's Cable's clone from the far future who mostly wanted revenge on the people he thought were his parents, but really just wanted to see the world burn. Strife's out of the picture now, and the MLF includes, among other members, former New Mutant Moonstar, who has been nominally undercover for a while, but going by her own surname. So yeah, that's dubious. And they're being led by Rainfire. Rainfire is a glam metal looking supervillain with a more than passing resemblance to an exceptionally 90s, exceptionally glam version of another former new mutant, namely Sunspot. In that X-Force MLF fight, Sunspot learns to fly through sheer force of will, 
and crashed into the MLF's resident time-space teleporter, Locus, after which both vanished for parts and times unknown. And that brings us to X-Force number 43, Teapot in a Tempest. This is written by Fabian Nacieza, penciled by Tony Daniel, inked by Kevin Conrad, and colored by Mike Thomas. And, oh man, Jay, this is Fabian Nacieza's last issue of X-Force. He's been around since New Mutants number 98, and this is the end of the road. Damn it. It's Tony Daniel's last issue too, but I'm, I'm less torn up about that. Eh. Next, we're going to get Jeff Loeb writing and Adam Polina penciling. That's going to be the road trip era, which is a divisive one, but I am excited to cover it. Yeah, one of the things I really dig about X-Force is that there seems to be a lot of freedom for it to be a pretty dynamic team. Its structure changes, its mission changes, its membership changes, and its tone, as we've seen and will continue to see, can change pretty wildly. And I like seeing the directions things go. Yeah, me too. But the direction I probably liked most was Fabian Nicieza's direction. He took my least favorite X-book and turned it into probably my favorite X-book of the era. He is a phenomenal writer, a phenomenal plotter. He puts so much heart into his books. And and goddamn, I'm just so grateful we got to cover so much of his work. And there will be a little more. He'll be on X-Men for a bit, and he does some Age of Apocalypse stuff. But for me, his X-Force is, I think, the best X-example of anything he's ever done. Agreed. And if you want to hear more about that, by the way, in addition to our coverage, you can hear Fabian Nacesa talk about it directly in episode 250. I'll link to that in the visual companion. As for this issue, well, we open with Cannonball doing us readers a solid by playing the end of X-Force 28, that battle we were just talking about, on the holo projector of Murder World. I figure it was either that or Forge's holo project your memories thing, and Forge is somewhere else right now. Do you think that Murder World actually has a holo projector that that's that's that good, or that it has to be supplemented with creepy androids. Uh, I don't know. Now I'm just imagining a, a bunch of like old '70s X-Men robots just dressed up as MLF characters. Well, yeah, no, I'm remembering that like when we were watching Avatar: The Last Airbender with a bunch of our friends, and Ryan would do recaps with his action figures before every every session, but they didn't have a Katara figure, so he'd use the Avatar State Aang figure for that. Oh, yeah, that was really fun, and I'm still mad yeah. that there wasn't a Katara figure. Me too. Anyway, Cannonball reminisces about his friendship with the now-missing Sunspot, about how it started out really rough back in the New Mutants graphic novel, but they got to be totally solid bros. And now that Cable is off in Israel dealing with Legion Quest, and Professor Xavier is too, Cannonball figures, you know what, he's gonna try something that they both told him wouldn't work. He's going to find Sunspot. And specifically, he's going to route Cerebro through Cable's sunken time machine because science. I, I think I know why Cable and Xavier said that wouldn't work. It sounds ridiculous. Yeah, but it's Cable and Xavier. And also... It does work. Almost immediately. Sunspot could have been in any time or any place. Locus's powers let her teleport to anywhere that either she or her targets have been, or any when. But it turns out, Sunspot's on Earth. Right now. And he's got great hair. Turns out. 
At this point, because X-Force doesn't ever want to keep you waiting, Locus, remember that teleporter lady we were just talking about? She teleports right in, and she's got this great new ski suit-looking costume with, like, a great big arrow on her face. I, I really like it. She's got some uh, brightly colored pointy sunglasses, too. I would wear those. And she is a little bit unhinged at this point, as happens when one travels through time a lot. We know she's at least been far enough in the future to know that CDs are going to be obsolete by the end of the decade, which is pretty much true to her credit, Um, and that Bobby abandoned her at some point, and she needs them to find Sunspot right now. Well, luckily for her, they just have. Yeah, so she immediately teleports them away without even giving them time to get ready or contact their missing comrades. I really appreciate that X-Force goes at the speed of X-Force. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, which which is to say a skateboard falling out of an airplane. Mm-hmm. There's probably some Mountain Dew involved, but no Adam X. He's matured. He's grown up. He used his powers to save an old man out in the snow, and it was beautiful. Doesn't mean he wouldn't still skateboard out of an airplane. He's a complicated man. Fair point. And no one understands him but Nessieza. And me. Mm, and me. Anyway, about those missing comrades, we are seeing some wonderful examples of the status quo that should have, could have been, with X-Force actually leading lives as normal people since they were based under New York City. This is all going to be swept away after Age of Apocalypse, but for now we get some wonderful examples. And we start out with, okay, fine, Boomer. Nope, nope, sounds weird. Boom, boom. Anyway, Tabitha, in her civilian identity, is hanging out in Greenwich Village. She's watching a social worker on a street corner try to get a teen sex worker to come to a place called Child Watch Organization. And Boom Boom realizes, oh man, this could have been her. She was a teenage runaway, but for better and for worse, she got mixed up with superheroes. So she really only had a little bit of thieving before she started wearing silly costumes and blowing up bad guys. There aren't a lot of characters who can say they're but for the grace of the beyonder. True, true. I actually really like Tony Daniels' work here. Um, The way he draws the handful of sex workers we see is almost Larry Stroman-esque in how varied their body types are and just how creative and interesting their fashion is. It kind of makes me wish we got to see this side of Tony Daniel more. Yeah, agreed. So... Boom Boom chases after the girl who runs away when her fellow sex workers are like, dude, our pimp's going to be real mad if you continue this conversation. And Boom Boom actually really connects with her. She knows how to talk to this girl. And it's so highlighted just how mature Tabitha has become over the years. I mean, she's acting like a big sister, like a grown-up. And and I'm very proud of our Tabby Smith. Oh man, me too. Unfortunately, she's not really able to follow through with this because the rest of her team immediately teleports in from overhead. Boom Boom says what we're all thinking. Great. Some choice. Save our friend or save one lost little girl. And conflicts like that are why I really wish we got to see more of this era. I mean, that's that's some Spider-Man shit, having to prioritize two equally important things that are in two totally different directions. Now, she isn't the only one of X-Force who is in the village. Um, Richter has decided to take Shatterstar clubbing. And it is rave-tacular. That's that's not a rave, Miles. It looks like a rave. There's glowy shit and, I don't know, probably ecstasy. Okay, buddy. I never went to any raves. Anyway, 
I do know that Richter and Shatterstar's hair is motherfucking majestic. Like, Rick's is shorter and punky ever since he got that Jane Lane haircut recently, and Stars is just this long, majestic mane. Oh, they're so, so glorious. Yeah, Rick Rick has the, it only works in comics, but it's fucking awesome, punk sort of forelock hair swoop, which I have achieved two or three times in real life, but it takes a lot of product. Yeah, well, superheroes, I feel like they use a lot of product. We know Wolverine does, canonically. Richter and Shatterstar's response to the club, though, doesn't have too much in common. Like, Richter's being all smooth with the ladies, which, you know, fits. But Shatterstar's just reminded of the shallow, materialistic horror of the Mojoverse. Well, and I think specifically the commodification of bodies in it. Yeah, absolutely that as well. But I do appreciate that we get a call out to illustrate this of the exact song that's playing right now. Um, yes, yes. This is if, if if you need to imagine music to this scene, the music you should be imagining is Sabotage by the Beastie Boys. And, you know, it's a song that's loud and primitive and conflicted, just like Shatterstar. I'm kind of reminded of that lovely scene from the beginning of Uncanny Annual Number 10, where Doug Ramsey's controlling the danger room and listening to the Bengals walk like an Egyptian. And yeah, that's an oldie (laughs) at this point, but like it fits so well, just that degree of like evil glee that this song has the sound of. Fair enough. Shatterstar runs out of the club, though, after a lady flirts really hard with him, and Richter follows... And they have a really good conversation. These two dudes are so good at talking about their feelings with each other. And what it turns out is that Shatterstar doesn't really know how to deal with someone coming on to him like that. He's never really, he's, 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 he's never had sex with anyone. He's never really had a sexual relationship of any kind and really has no idea how to process or react to what's going on. And Richter sympathizes and is honest about why that he's never had sex with anyone either. Like, given how much Richter can embody sort of toxic masculinity, that that degree of being very closed off, of only being allowed to express anger, the way he just opens up and is honest with himself as well as Shatterstar when the two of them talk is great. It's also really neat watching their conversations and watching their relationship unfold as they learn more about each other. And as specifically Richter, who thinks of himself as coming from sort of the neutral point of view of normal, asks what are sometimes really invasive questions. Are you, I mean, do you have what it takes? I was bioengineered to fully simulate physical human interaction but no one ever bothered to instill the emotional requirements which I have learned are attached to such actions. I love them so much together. I'm so glad they end up as a couple. I mean, an on-again, off-again couple, but still. And Shatterstar especially so obviously has a thing for Richter at this point. Oh yeah, it's, I don't know if Fabian Nicieza himself intended it, but it's very, very clear looking back. Yeah, it it really is. And some of it, and it's, it's, it's one of those... One of those crushes, which I think is a common experience for a lot of people, but an especially common experience for queer and trans folks who haven't quite unfolded their own sexuality, of knowing there's some, that you have some kind of feelings about someone, but not being sure whether it's about just wanting to understand them or something or, or, or identifying with them or something else. 
Yeah, totally. I completely see that parallel. I agree. But they don't have too much time to process it because then their pouch-covered allies teleport in and grab them too. And as for where they take them, well, we see that place before X-Force gets there. It's the Animator's Island. It's the Mutant Liberation Front space. And there, Moonstar is running from Rainfire, who who kills her horse. Um, this is, is Darkwind, whose name I mistakenly read as Darkwing a couple times. Yeah, Darkwind. Darkwind is the sort of demonic version of Danny's Valkyrie horse, Brightwind, that she's been with for years and years and years. And, oh man, first Butter Rum, and now Bright slash Darkwind? Oh, Danny should talk to Firestar. They can have a support group. But seriously, it's horrifying, not just because of what's happening, but also because Tony Daniel does a really good job with Danny's facial expression and body language. She is legitimately terrified, and you don't see that with Mirage very often at all. She is not, however, super clearly visually identifiable as herself, which is a little frustrating. Yeah, well, you're basically identifying her by costume, as often happens in superhero comics. And she is alone now and doesn't know how she's going to deal other than commenting on that aloud, which of course cues X-Force's appearance and Sam's comment. Danny girl, that's always been your mistake. You've never been alone. It's a little creepy. I think it's nice, but Rainfire does show up and when X-Force demands of him, hey, where's our bud? Where's Sunspot? The coordinate machine said that these were his coordinates. Uh, he takes off his mask, revealing himself to, in fact be Sunspot. But it can't be. I mean, Sunspot was with us on the mission where we fought you. To which Rainfire responds, Ah, but time has a habit of pulling the rug out from under the feet of anyone wearing an X on their belt, doesn't it? And as Rainfire's about to blow everybody up, you guessed it, everything goes crystal. And in this issue, the characters actually realize it. They see the world ending around them and have just a moment to freak out about it. As Cannonball realizes. Oh lord, it's what Cable told me about. They were trying to stop the end of the... And that's it. The end of the what? We'll never know. And once again... We have an important plot line interrupted by the end of the world. That's one thing I think works really well about the end of Legion Quest and the end of the X-Line before Age of Apocalypse is by denying readers so many facts, so many plot lines, it really hammers home just how unfortunate it is that the world is ending. I mean, we already kind of knew that, but it makes us really feel it. Well, it makes us feel and see the, really the full range of perspective towards it. Um, you know, the people who see it coming, the people who know in advance what's coming, and the people who are caught totally unawares. Speaking of the ending of the world and feelings about it, let's talk about Cable. But first, let's do a very quick recap of where we left off with Legion Quest. Right. That's because Cable number 20 is technically the last issue of Legion Quest. Neither of the previous issues we talked about are. Those are just taking place concurrent to it. This actually ties up the story. So what's happened so far in Legion Quest? Okay, so where this takes place, which, like I said, is sort of during the last official issue, Professor X's iffily mentally ill and thoroughly omnipotent son, Legion, has gone back in time to do his dad a solid. He's going to kill Magneto before Magneto can become the perpetual magnetic thorn in Xavier's side that we've known and loved for so many years. 
Unfortunately for everyone, this plan is both a massive dick move and a really bad idea. Among other things, he's gone back far enough in time that Xavier and Magneto are still besties, which means that when Legion goes to shoot Magneto, Xavier leaps in front of his friend and takes the bullet for him. And this is a big enough deal, and overlaps with some Emkron Crystal stuff enough, that reality is going to end. Now, in an attempt to fix this, in the present day, the Shi'ar Empire and the X-Men have teamed up to use their telepaths to send Cable back in time, to sort of wake up the X-Men that are stuck back there amnesiac. This is a group who Legion pulled along with him when he first jumped back. Right, so that those X-Men can maybe fix everything. Uh, spoiler, it doesn't work. And that brings us to Cable number 20, an hour of last things. This is written by Jeff Loeb, penciled by Ian Churchill, inked by Bud LaRosa, W.C. Karani, and Hilary Barta, and colored by Mike Thomas. Once again, this is basically a companion volume to X-Men 41. It's less new territory than just a slightly shifted perspective. So, I was thinking about this, Jay. Do you think that instead of doing this issue, just making X-Men number 41 double-sized and including all the content together would have worked better? Or does it work better here to sort of have a lot of the more emotional stuff put in its own place? I actually kind of like the way it's set up here. If you'd asked me that question going in just blind without seeing how either turned out, I would definitely have told you make it a double-sized issue. But here I think breaking it up actually works pretty well. So we mentioned Jeff Loeb. He's going to be doing X-Force very soon, but he was not the regular cable writer here. This was sort of a one-off gig. And there's a really cool interview that Stefan Blitz and Brian Sander Lampkin did with Jeff Loeb in an issue of Comicology, which was sort of a, a magazine about comics back in the day. And I kind of want to just read Jeff Loeb's take on this because it's really interesting. I wanted to write Uncanny, and I knew that the only way that was going to happen was if I wrote the best X-Men stories I could without the X-Men being in them. I tried to get them to co-star whenever I could, and at the point that I did Cable Number 20, which by a fluke turned out to be the last X-Men story before Age of Apocalypse, because it was the last book that was shipping, the editor suddenly realized that the X-Men hadn't had a chance to say goodbye before everyone died, so I got to write a last X-Men story. What was great about it was that it was a character piece. I felt that Warren would not accept that the universe was going to die. He was not just going to stand there and fade out, and that instead he would, like Icarus, fly into the sun. We had a lot of discussions about it, and Bob put his foot down and said, no X-Man would ever take his own life. Other than that, nothing was changed in that story, and in my opinion, it was one of the best stories that I wrote in that group. Hmm, so what do you think about that take on Archangel? I mean, we've certainly seen him be arguably suicidal before after his wings got cut off, but that's sort of ambiguous continuity-wise. I don't know. I honestly really like the way it turned out in X-Men 41 and this issue, with him realizing how standoffish he's been and reconnecting with his close friends before the end comes. Yeah, honestly, I think I would have bought that half a year ago, but in context of what we've seen from him recently, this rings much truer and I think gives it a much more emotionally satisfying beat. You mentioned that part of why Legion Quest works is that a lot of the time the end of the world catches people mid-story or unawares. This is the exception to that, and I think the contrast is a lot of what makes it work. That for all of the people who are cut off, you know, mid-word, there's this group who has the mixed blessing of knowing it's coming. Exactly, and we see so much more of that in this issue because one of the first things that happens is that Cable gets back from his jaunt to the past— 
and the X-Men realize it didn't work. The world is still going to end. Or it doesn't matter if it worked. It doesn't matter if he did what he set out to do. It wasn't enough. And they face certain oblivion with varying degrees of equanimity. Mostly Gambit throws a big old tantrum. He is not okay with this. Yeah. And the Beast, as per usual, monologues to deal with life's difficult problems. I've devoted my whole life to the unanswered questions of science. Forgone the happiness that I suspect my fellow X-Men share in desires of the heart. Now, on the brink of answering more questions about the legacy virus, an opportunity to better comprehend time travel, what alone I could learn from these Shi'ar, has it all been for nothing? Should I have been like the pulchritudinous archangel and kept myself aloof from my responsibilities to mankind? And the aforementioned Archangel, instead of flying into the sun like Icarus, he jars Hank out of his monologue reverie by swooping around and telling Hank that he's his best friend. Oh, I may be mistaken, but I think Hank may be the only one of the original five that every single other one of the original five has referred to as their best friend at some point. I think that's right, and it totally fucking works, because he's absolutely that guy. Also, I'd like to point out that Archangel is now wearing the red and white variant of his has-a-halo-on-its-chest costume, even though he was wearing the blue and white variant in the rest of Legion Quest. You know why, right? Um, because the comics wanted to justify the fact that I got his costume colors wrong a few episodes ago? No. Remember the major turning point for him, the conversation that really led to his, his, his thinking about what he'd been doing and having a change of heart. Remember who it was with? Jubilee. That's right. Angel is seizing the day with fashion. Oh, he's come so far. You should just take his shirt off every time he got upset. Yeah. Rogue and Gambit discuss some of their own might-have-beens and bicker while also trying to connect. Remember, this is leading up to that fabulous final kiss they share as the world ends. And I like that we get to see a little more of it. I like that we get to see just how stormy their relationship is right up until the end. It makes the kiss that much more cathartic, I guess. This is the one bit where the two separate issues didn't quite work for me, for me because I think you do really need the kiss there as the resolution. Yeah, it's weird. Like, I almost—that's kind of why I almost feel like we should have just had all of the stuff crammed into Legion Quest Chapter 4, because you sort of have to interleave the two stories, and you really can't and have them still make sense. Right. Now, as, as Rogue and Gambit sort of fail to connect, Cable awkwardly confesses that he has actual capital F feelings for Domino— who assumes that he's joking and eventually comes back to say that she reciprocates and, and they kiss, but there's there's a long, awkward, awkward separation in the middle of that. And again, it's just so cathartic. I mean, the world is ending. We're losing so much. The X-Men are losing so much. We, the readers, are losing so much, especially if, like, young Miles, they thought it was never going to come back to this reality. But having those small bits of emotional catharsis, those small bits of happiness amid oblivion, really, really makes this work as a denouement. Well, and if you know that it's not ending, if you know the thing that the characters don't, which is that, you know, they're going to be back to all of this, you're left with really interesting questions about how much of this stuff is going to stick and how much of it is just things that people are doing because they think that the world is ending. 
I really appreciate that as far as Rogue and Gambit kissing, both the events of future plots and the sort of emotional context of future plots really directly address that. Yeah, agreed. Now, there's one couple here who's really had all of their massive cathartic explosive moments and is now in a much quieter place, and that's Scott and Jean. And they sort of talk their way through what's happening and including complicated Wolverine feelings. As Jean says, Oh, Scott, I, I thought I'd see my parents, my niece and nephew, and maybe even Logan one last time before... I'm sorry, I shouldn't even have told you. You were being honest, and I respect that. And in my own way, I missed a little runt myself. Scott, I think I love you more right now than in all the years we've known each other. Yeah, their job in this issue is definitely to be the emotionally mature ones, because they go from that to reassuring the professor that his dream wasn't in vain, and then go tell Cable that they were Slim and Red all the time, um, which it turns out he already knows. Slim and Red, of course, being the identities they took on when they got shunted into the future to raise a baby, child, and teenage Cable. And man, Cable's slight but warm smile as he quietly says thank you when they tell him. Like, he already knows, but he's just so grateful that they decided to make that connection, to be open and honest with them. And it's always weird having Scott and Jean's son, well, okay, technically Scott and Maddie's, but effectively Scott and Jean's son be like twice their age, but God, those family emotions, those family ties totally come through. This is another thing that it's really neat to see spelled out just because it's been another kind of will-they-won't-they tension for so long, but also because Cable first realized this before it had happened for Scott and Jean. So this is, this is something that all three of them knew, but all three of them knew from kind of different directions because Cable had realized that Scott and Jean were slim and red before Scott and Jean went back in time to become slim and red. So they had no way of knowing that he knew. And they decided they weren't going to tell him. They were very careful not to tell him when they were actually raising him in the future because they didn't know how it would mess up the timeline. And here they've decided that it just they, they should be able to actually deliberately, openly be a family. And... Yet, no matter what, it messes up. And Cable, who knows a thing or two about the time stream, responds. The timeline. Even with all the experience I've had with time travel. Look, maybe in the end, nothing is certain. By going into the future, you both changed my life. You gave me a family. How can that be wrong? All I now know about time is that it is precious. And I don't regret a single moment being your son. I'm not crying, you're crying. Oh man, I have so many more Cable feels than I ever thought I would when he first came onto the scene. He's very big, there are room for a lot of them. That's true, he probably keeps them in his pouches. And finally, the characters having said goodbye in whatever ways they could, and Xavier having thanked them all and hoped that they could all at least have closure, what they know is coming. Hits. Now, this is this is played somewhat differently from X-Men 41. This is the only point I think of direct conflict with it, because in that, the characters were all kind of scattered around in twos or threes, and here, they're all gathered in one place for a moment of reflection. It began some time ago, in an exclusive private school, 
in New York's Westchester County. Five youths with colorful names, Cyclops, Marvel Girl, Angel, Iceman, Beast. They heard a telepathic voice and responded without question. Attention, X-Men, this is Professor Xavier calling. You are ordered to appear at once. As time went on, their ranks swelled. Some died. Some married. Some had children. But no matter where their lives took them, the badge they wore, a simple X, bonded them together as a family. Together they fought for the noblest of causes, a dream where all men and women, mutant and human alike, would live in peace and harmony. In the blink of an eye, the dream ends. The Emkron crystal runs unchecked across the planet. There will be no tomorrow, only the memory of what might have been. God damn. This ending, this issue, this era, this event. This is some of the strongest X-Men has ever been. We talk a lot of shit about the 90s, but for all the low lows, there are such high highs. Speaking of high highs, man, that closing narration has some serious X-Men 137 energy. It really does, yeah. And I think that's intentional. I mean, we see all the watchers showing up to watch this event. It is momentous. It is historical. The watchers just sitting there eating popcorn. Oh, yeah, yeah. They, they um, Instead of opening their wrappers really quick, they open them kind of slowly so it makes less of a noise, but really that just makes the noise take longer. But no, in all seriousness, I love Age of Apocalypse, but... Age of Apocalypse so often overshadows Legion Quest and the ending of the world, and that is an important, excellent story as well. We get to know these characters so well by how they do or don't have a chance to face the end. And as that coverage comes to the end, you, listeners, have questions. An anonymous listener asks on Tumblr, What are your thoughts on characters who have vague power sets? I was unclear on what Mr. Sinister's powers were, and his wiki doesn't give him a specific power, but a lot of unrelated random powers. Same for Exodus and a bunch of other 90s characters. So I think it absolutely depends on the character in question. I feel like not only should the character's powers fit their personality, but how specific or nonspecific the powers are, that can also say something about the character's personality. So for somebody like Mr. Sinister, to use the example you did— I'm all about his powers being really vague and undefined. Like, Sinister is mysterious, he's got a complicated long past, and he's all about doing unexpected stuff. So having him be able to do basically whatever whenever the plot calls for it or whenever it would be a surprise, like, yeah, totally. I'm all about that. Also, with all of the weird genetic stuff he's done over the years, like, he can probably give himself whatever powers he feels like. The other example you mentioned, Exodus... I really like Exodus early on when his powers are vaguer. I like his powers vague more than I like them defined because early on, he's not his own person. He basically only exists as a mouthpiece for Magneto and then a surrogate for Magneto. And so him having his individuality a little blurred by his powers being a little blurred, that's really cool. I feel like the character loses something in Blood Ties when it goes so directly into how his telekinesis and stuff and his energy powers work. 
that makes him less interesting in the way that he was interesting initially. So I think Exodus and sometimes Sinister are good examples of ways that this can go both right and wrong. Because on one hand, when you've got a character with undefined powers, you can do a lot of cool stuff with that, you know, to fit narrative requirements. On the other hand, it makes them very, very vulnerable to power creep. That's true. Yeah, that's true. But I think a lot of 90s characters who just have generic energy powers, it's really a missed opportunity. So for me, my go-to character is Hazard. His powers are so generic and vague, it's energy stuff and he kills people with it. And so I feel like if his ideals or his challenges, if his powers fit those the way they fit with like Colossus or Wolfsbane or Random or Cyclops, he could be a much more memorable and well-defined character. As is, he can just go sit in the corner with Sienna Blaze. The thing with those vague power sets is that they are only as good as the writers handling them and the amount of narrative leeway those writers have. In the right hands, you can do very, very cool stuff with a vague power set, either with its vagueness or with further defining it. In the wrong hands, they just become ambient noise. Natalie G asks on Twitter, I recently listened to the episode where you talk about the incoming powers and House of X. Dawn of X titles have been going a while, but what are your opinions on the new direction for mutants? My opinions are heavily, heavily conflicted. On the one hand, I think it's really cool science fiction. I think it's an interesting and daring reimagining and take on something that stayed static in a lot of relevant ways for a pretty long time. On the other hand, it's really impossible for me to completely divorce mutants as a narrative unit in a fictional universe from mutants as really critical representational lifelines to readers. And... The disconnect between those in Dawn of X is something that's really hard for me and something that I find frustrating. For all the weakness of the mutant metaphor, I think it's still really important and I don't know how I feel about it being written past the ways that it's been here. I mean, I think I think there are there's a case to be made for it, but at the same time the larger world political ramifications and role of Krakoa, to me, undercut a lot of the arguments in its favor. There's actually a really cool article that I believe just dropped today as we're recording this um, by Danny Kinney on Women Write About Comics. It's called New Intersections, Queer Futurism, and the Krakoan Body Politic. And it addresses a lot of what you're discussing, Jay, and I think, um, listeners, you might want to check that one out. It's got some really interesting takes on the topic. Yeah, we've definitely retweeted the article, but um, I'll make sure to link to it in the visual companion to this episode as well. It's well, well worth a read. I don't think it could have had a title that was more specifically targeted to our interests either. <laughs> right. So me, um, I think what you're saying is absolutely valid. I'm perhaps being overly uh, naively optimistic to think that this is something that will be addressed further. I think it's been addressed some, but if it's not addressed further, it will be absolutely incomplete and unfortunate. But other than that, overall, I'm really loving this era. Something that Chip Starsky said when we talked to him um, that I think applies here in terms of plot is that you don't always want to give your readers what they want plot-wise. I'm not talking about representation. I'm just talking about pure pure plot here. And that Claremont was largely interesting because he would take things in unexpected directions that weren't crowd-pleasing directions. And so 
while there's a lot of joy and triumph to the current status quo, there's also a lot of characters doing bad shit and bad stuff happening. And I like that the current era is really keeping us on our toes. And also, I'm just all about pirate Captain Kate Pride and Richter as a freaking druid and canonically polyamorous X-Men and friendship missions in space. And like, there's just so much enjoyable, fun stuff here. So I feel like if the representation topic that you brought up, Jay, if that gets properly addressed, this is going to maybe be one of the best eras of X-Men ever. You know, it's interesting the examples you called out because those are those are my favorites as well. And I found, I was talking about this with someone the other day, this has continued to be the case, that my favorite books in this era tend to be the ones that are furthest from the center. So Marauders, the space half of New Mutants, and now also X-Men Fantastic Four. Yeah, no, I, I can see that as well. And certainly those have, have been big time highlights. So yeah, I'm really curious how it's going to shape up, especially with approximately one trillion books launching over the next few months. Before we move on, we wanted to talk a little about scheduling. Recently, Miles and I have been thinking and talking a lot about what we set out to do when we started this podcast and what we want it to be and all of the sorts of things that come up when you're two people working multiple jobs while doing a weekly research-intensive podcast for just about six straight years. So stuff like avoiding burnout and creative ruts. And we're at the point where both the X line and our own lives have been getting more and more complex, and we're realizing that to keep the show coming out regularly at the level of quality we want is going to take some adjustment. Fortunately, we have a lot of experience with that. See 2017, for instance. So we're confident that we can not only find a configuration that works, but do it with a reasonable degree of panache. So to that end, we're going to start by experimenting with a three weeks on, one week off recording schedule. Sometimes there might be a fourth episode in a month, like if we do a special, for instance, but that's roughly how we're planning to do things going forward. Hopefully that schedule will give us a little more space to approach increasingly tangly coverage in a deliberate and organized way, and more importantly, at a pace and at a level of quality that we can sustain for the long haul without burning out, like Adam X set our blood on fire or something. Because... This show is pretty much the coolest thing I've ever been part of, and we want to keep making it happen right up until the Emcron ends the universe. Uh, Miles, I hate to break this to you. I mean, our universe. Given that it's an election year, I'm less confident on that front than I would normally be. But anyway, we are setting the first off week as this coming one, mostly because it feels like a good narrative beat to take a breath. And to build a bit of extra anticipation for Age of Apocalypse. Meanwhile, we are a fully listener-supported podcast, and certain levels of support come with on-air acknowledgement from various fictional characters and concepts. Behold, the angry Claremontian narrator. After everything, Grayson Starr, David Barber, you find yourselves alone and wondering, as each of you will always wonder, alone, whether it was all worth it. You'll never know the answer to that question, nor to the one that you've both left unasked. If either of you had spoken up when you had the chance, things might have been different. But now, that mystery will die alongside the rest. On a dubiously more cheerful note, my care goes to Rainfire. 
As much as I enjoy the naive charm of your futile search for your lost friend, Micah Cole, the time has come to end your willful ignorance and state the obvious. I, Rainfire, am Micah Cole. Impossible, is it? You should know better, old friend. What are time and space to those such as we? Those with righteous mullets and probable electric guitars. But my necessary, horrifying task is not without further complication. And do you know why, Adam B.? Can your blinded eyes and closed mind accept that which is so clearly true? Can you comprehend that I am not only Micah Cole, I... Adam B. am also you. And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter. New episodes come out Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for all kinds of extra content, including visual companions for every episode, and come see us at Emerald City Comic Con this month. And FlameCon in a little while. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, the end of one universe is the beginning of another. As we enter... The, the Age, Age of, of Apocalypse. apocalypse.